on the education of children. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Fraser. On the Education of Children by Michelle de Montaigne. Translated by Charles Cotton. To Madame Diane de Foix, Comtesse de Gerson. I never yet saw that father, but let his son be never so decrepit or deformed, would not, notwithstanding, own him, not, nevertheless, if he were not totally besotted and blinded with his paternal affection, that he did not well enough discern his defects, but that, with all defaults, he was still his. Just so, I see better than any other, that all I write here are but the idle reveries of a man that has only nibbled upon the outward crust of sciences in his knowledge, and only retained a general and formless image of them, who has got a little snatch of everything and nothing of the whole, à la François. For I know, in general, that there is such a thing as physic, as jurisprudence, four parts in mathematics, and roughly what all these aim and point at. And, peradventure, I yet know farther what sciences in general pretend unto, in order to the service of our life. But to die farther than that, and to have cudgelled my brains in the study of Aristotle, the monarch of all modern learning, or particularly addicted myself to any one science, I have never done it. Neither is there any one art of which I am able to draw the first lineaments and dead colour. Insomuch that there is not a boy of the lowest form in a school that may not pretend to be wiser than I, who am not able to examine him in his first lesson, which, if I am at any time forced upon, I am necessitated, in my own defence, to ask him, unaptly enough, some universal questions, such as may serve to try his natural understanding, a lesson as strange and unknown to him as his is to me. I never seriously settled myself to the reading any book of solid learning but Plutarch and Seneca, and there, like the Danades, I eternally fill, and it, as constantly, runs out. Something of which drops upon this paper, but little or nothing stays with me. History is my particular game as the matter of reading, or else poetry, for which I have particular kindness and esteem. For, as Cleanthes said, as the voice, forced through the narrow passage of a trumpet, comes out more forcible and shrill, so, methinks, a sentence pressed within the harmony of verse darts out more briskly upon the understanding and strikes my ear and apprehension with a smarter and more pleasing effect. As to the natural parts I have, of which this is the essay, I find them to bow under the burden. My fancy and judgment do but grope in the dark, tripping and stumbling in the way. And when I have gone as far as I can, I am in no degree satisfied. I discover still a new and greater extent of land before me, with a troubled and imperfect sight, and wrapped up in clouds that I am not able to penetrate. And taking upon me to write indifferently of whatever comes into my head, and therein making use of nothing but my own proper and natural means. If it befall me, as oft times it does, 
accidentally to meet in any good author the same heads and commonplaces upon which I have attempted to write, as I did but just now in Plutarch's Discourse of the Force of Imagination, to see myself so weak and so forlorn, so heavy and so flat, in comparison of those better writers, I at once pity or despise myself. Yet do I please myself with this, that my opinions have often the honour and good fortune to jump with theirs, and that I go in the same path, though at a very great distance, and can say, ah, that is so. I am farther satisfied to find that I have a quality which everyone is not blessed with all, which is to discern the vast difference between them and me, and, notwithstanding all that, suffer my own inventions, low and feeble as they are, to run on in their career, without mending or plastering up the defects that this comparison has laid open to my own view. And, in plain truth, a man had need of a good strong back to keep pace with these people. The indiscreet scribblers of our times, who, amongst their laborious nothings, insert whole sections and pages out of ancient authors, with a design by that means to illustrate their own writings, do quite contrary. For this infinite dissimilitude of ornaments renders the complexion of their own compositions so sallow and deformed that they lose much more than they get. The philosophers, Chrysippus and Epicurus, were in this of two quite contrary humours. The first, not only in his books, mixed passages and sayings of other authors, but entire pieces, and in one, the whole Medea of Euripides, which gave Apollodorus occasion to say that should a man pick out of his writings all that was none of his, he would leave him nothing but blank paper. Whereas the latter, quite on the contrary, in three hundred volumes that he left behind him, has not so much as one quotation. Diogenes Laetius, Lives of Chrysippus, 7, 181, and Epicurus, 10, 26. I happened the other day upon this piece of fortune. I was reading a French book, whereafter I had a long time run dreaming over a great many words, so dull, so insipid, so void of all wit or common sense, that indeed they were only French words. After a long and tedious travel, I came at last to meet with a piece that was lofty, rich, and elevated to the very clouds, of which, had I found either the declivity easy or the ascent gradual, there had been some excuse. But it was so perpendicular a precipice, and so wholly cut off from the rest of the work, that by the first six words I found myself flying into the other world, and thence discovered the veil whence I came so deep and low, that I had never had since the heart to descend into it any more. If I should set out one of my discourses with such rich spoils as these, it would, but too evidently, manifest the imperfection of my own writing. To reprehend the fault in others that I am guilty of myself appears to me no more unreasonable than to condemn, as I often do, those of others in myself. They are to be everywhere reproved, and ought to have no sanctuary allowed them. I know very well how audaciously I myself, at every turn, attempt to equal myself to my thefts, 
and to make my style go hand in hand with them. Not without a temerarious hope of deceiving the eyes of my reader from discerning the difference. But withal, it is as much by the benefit of my application that I hope to do it, as by that of my invention or any force of my own. Besides, I do not offer to contend with the whole body of these champions, nor hand to hand with any one of them. It is only by flights and little light attempts that I engage them. I do not grapple with them, but try their strength only, and never engage so far as I make a show to do. If I could hold them in play, I were a brave fellow, for I never attack them but where they are most sinewy and strong. To cover a man's self, as I have seen some do, with another man's armour, so as not to discover so much as his finger's ends, to carry on a design, as it is not hard for a man that has anything of a scholar in him, in an ordinary subject, to do, under old inventions patched up here and there with his own trumpery, and then to endeavour to conceal the theft, and to make it pass for his own, is first injustice and meanness of spirit in those who do it, who, having nothing in them of their own fit to procure them a reputation, endeavour to do it by attempting to impose things upon the world in their own name, which they have no manner of title to. And next, a ridiculous folly to content themselves with acquiring the ignorant approbation of the vulgar by such a pitiful cheat, at the price at the same time of degrading themselves in the eyes of men of understanding, who turn up their noses at all this borrowed incrustation, yet whose praise alone is worth the having. For my own part, there is nothing I would not sooner do than that neither have I said so much of others, but to get a better opportunity to explain myself. Nor in this do I glance at the composers of centos who declare themselves for such, of which sort of writers I have in my time known many very ingenious, and particularly one under the name of Capilipus, besides the ancients. These are really men of wit, and that make it appear they are so, both by that and other ways of writing. As, for example, Lipsius, in that learned and laborious contexture of his politics. But, be it how it will, and how inconsiderable soever these ineptitudes may be, I will say I never intended to conceal them, no more than my old, bald, grizzled likeness before them, where the painter has presented you not with a perfect face, but with mine. For these are my own particular opinions and fancies, and I deliver them as only what I myself believe, and not for what is to be believed by others. I have no other end in this writing but only to discover myself, who also shall, peradventure, be another thing tomorrow if I chance to meet any new instruction to change me. I have no authority to be believed, neither do I desire it, being too conscious of my own inerudition to be able to instruct others. Someone then, having seen the preceding chapter, the other day told me at my house that I should a little farther have extended my discourse on the education of children. Now, madam, if I had any sufficiency in this subject, I could not possibly better employ it than to present my best instructions to the little man that threatens you shortly with a happy birth, for you are too generous to begin otherwise than with a male. For, having had so great a hand in the treaty of your marriage, 
I have a certain particular right and interest in the greatness and prosperity of the issue that shall spring from it. Beside that, your having had the best of my services so long in possession sufficiently obliges me to desire the honour and advantage of all wherein you shall be concerned. But, in truth, all I understand as to that particular is only this, that the greatest and most important difficulty of human science is the education of children. For, as in agriculture, the husbandry that is to precede planting, as also planting itself, is certain, plain, and well known. But after that which is planted comes to life, there is a great deal more to be done, more art to be used, more care to be taken, and much more difficulty to cultivate and bring it to perfection. So it is with men. It is no hard matter to get children, but after they are born, then begins the trouble, solicitude, and care, rightly, to train, principle, and bring them up. The symptoms of their inclinations in that tender age are so obscure, and the promise is so uncertain and fallacious, that it is very hard to establish any solid judgment or conjecture upon them. Look at Cimon, for example, and Themistocles, and a thousand others who very much deceived the expectation men had of them. Cubs of bears and puppies readily discover their natural inclination, but men, so soon as ever they are grown up, applying themselves to certain habits, engaging themselves in certain opinions, and conforming themselves to particular laws and customs, easily alter, or at least disguise, their true and real disposition. And yet, it is hard to force the propension of nature. Whence it comes to pass, that for not having chosen the right course, we often take very great pains, and consume a good part of our time, in training up children to things for which, by their natural constitution, they are totally unfit. In this difficulty, nevertheless, I am clearly of opinion that they ought to be elemented in the best and most advantageous studies, without taking too much notice of, or being too superstitious, in those light prognostics they give of themselves in their tender years, and to which Plato in his Republic gives, methinks, too much authority. Madam, science is a very great ornament and a thing of marvellous use, especially in persons raised to that degree of fortune in which you are, and, in truth, in persons of mean and low condition. It cannot perform its true and genuine office, being naturally more prompt to assist in the conduct of war, in the government of peoples, in negotiating the leagues and friendships of princes and foreign nations, than in forming a syllogism in logic, in pleading a process in law, or in prescribing a dose of pills in physic. Wherefore, madam, believing you will not omit this so necessary feature in the education of your children, who yourself have tasted its sweetness, and are of a learned extraction, for we yet have the writings of the ancient Counts of Foix, from whom my lord, your husband, and yourself, are both of you descended, and Monsieur de Candal, your uncle, every day obliges the world with others, which will extend the knowledge of this quality in your family for so many succeeding ages. I will, upon this occasion, presume to acquaint your ladyship with one particular fancy of my own, contrary to the common method, 
which is all I am able to contribute to your service in this affair. The charge of the tutor you shall provide for your son, upon the choice of whom depends the whole success of his education, has several other great and considerable parts and duties required in so important a trust, besides that of which I am about to speak. These, however, I shall not mention, as, being unable to add anything of moment to the common rules, and in this, wherein I take upon me to advise, he may follow it so far only as it shall appear advisable. For a boy of quality, then, who pretends to letters not upon the account of profit, for so mean an object is unworthy of the grace and favour of the muses, and, moreover, in it a man directs his service to and depends upon others, nor so much for outward ornament as for his own proper and peculiar use, and to furnish and enrich himself within, having rather a desire to come out an accomplished cavalier than a mere scholar or learned man. For such a one, I say, I would also have his friends solicitors to find him out a tutor, who has rather a well-made than a well-filled head, seeking, indeed, both the one and the other, but rather of the two to prefer manners and judgment to mere learning, and that this man should exercise his charge after a new method. Tis the custom of pedagogues to be eternally thundering in their pupils' ears, as they were pouring into a funnel, whilst the business of the pupil is only to repeat what the others have said. Now I would have a tutor to correct this error, and that at the very first he should, according to the capacity he has to deal with, put it to the test, permitting his pupil himself to taste things, and of himself to discern and choose them, sometimes opening the way to him, and sometimes leaving him to open it for himself. That is, I would not have him alone to invent and speak, but that he should also hear his pupil speak in turn. Socrates, and since him Archesilaus, made first their scholar speak, and then they spoke to them. Diogenes Laetius 4.36 Obest plerumque eis qui discere volunt, auctoritas eorum, Qui docent. The authority of those who teach is very often an impediment to those who desire to learn. Cicero, De Natura Dior, I. 5. It is good to make him, like a young horse trot before him, that he may judge of his going, and how much he is to abate of his own speed, to accommodate himself to the vigour and capacity of the other, for want of which due proportion we spoil all which also to know how to adjust, and to keep within an exact and due measure, is one of the hardest things I know, and tis the effect of a high and well-tempered soul, to know how to condescend to such puerile motions, and to govern and direct them. I walk firmer and more secure uphill than down. Such as, according to our common way of teaching, undertake, with one and the same lesson, and the same measure of direction, to instruct several boys of differing and unequal capacities, are infinitely mistaken. And tis no wonder if in a whole multitude of scholars there are not found above two or three who bring away any good account of their time and discipline. Let the master not only examine him about the grammatical construction of the bare words of his lesson, but about the sense. And let him judge of the profit he has made, 
not by the testimony of his memory, but by that of his life. Let him make him put what he has learned into a hundred several forms, and accommodate it to so many several subjects, to see if he yet rightly comprehends it, and has made it his own, taking instruction of his progress by the pedagogic institutions of Plato. Tis a sign of crudity and indigestion to disgorge what we eat in the same condition it was swallowed. The stomach has not performed its office unless it have altered the form and condition of what was committed to it to concoct. Our minds work only upon trust, when bound and compelled to follow the appetite of another's fancy, enslaved and captivated under the authority of another's instruction. We have been so subjected to the trammel that we have no free nor natural pace of our own. Our own vigour and liberty are extinct and gone. Nunquam tutele sue fiunt. They are ever in wardship. Seneca, Ep. 33. I was privately carried at Pisa to see a very honest man, but so great an Aristotelian that his most usual thesis was that the touchstone and square of all solid imagination, and of all truth, was an absolute conformity to Aristotle's doctrine, and that all besides was nothing but inanity and chimera, for that he had seen all and said all. A position that for having been a little too injuriously and broadly interpreted, brought him once, and long kept him, in great danger of the Inquisition of Rome. Let him make him examine and thoroughly sift everything he reads, and lodge nothing in his fancy upon simple authority and upon trust. Aristotle's principles will then be no more principles to him than those of Epicurus and the Stoics. Let this diversity of opinions be propounded to and laid before him. He will himself choose if he be able. If not, he will remain in doubt. Che non mente save, dubia magrata. I love to doubt as well as to know. Dante Inferno, 11.93 For if he embrace the opinions of Xenophon and Plato by his own reason, they will no more be theirs, but become his own. Who follows another, follows nothing, finds nothing, nay, is inquisitive after nothing. Non sumus sub rege. Sibi quisque se vindicet. We are under no king. Let each vindicate himself. Seneca, Ep. 33. Let him at least know that he knows. It will be necessary that he imbibe their knowledge, not that he be corrupted with their precepts. And no matter if he forget where he had his learning, provided he know how to apply it to his own use. Truth and reason are common to everyone, and are no more his who spake them first, than his who speaks them after. Tis no more according to Plato than according to me, since both he and I equally see and understand them. Bees cull their several sweets from this flower and that blossom, here and there where they find them, but themselves afterwards make the honey, which is all and purely their own and no more time and marjoram. So the several fragments he borrows from others, he will transform and shuffle together to compile a work that shall be absolutely his own. That is to say, his judgment, his instruction, labour and study tend to nothing else but to form that.
he is not obliged to discover whence he got the materials that have assisted him, but only to produce what he has himself done with them. Men that live upon pillage and borrowing expose their purchases and buildings to everyone's view, but do not proclaim how they came by the money. We do not see the fees and perquisites of a gentleman of the long robe, but we see the alliances wherewith he fortifies himself and his family, and the titles and honours he has obtained for him and his. No man divulges his revenue, or at least, which way it comes in, but everyone publishes his acquisitions. The advantages of our study are to become better and more wise. Tis, says Epicharmus, the understanding that sees and hears. Tis the understanding that improves everything, that orders everything, and that acts, rules, and reigns. All other faculties are blind and deaf, and without soul. And certainly we render it timorous and servile, in not allowing it the liberty and privilege to do anything of itself. Whoever asked his pupil what he thought of grammar and rhetoric, or of such and such a sentence of Cicero, our masters stick them full-feathered in our memories, and there establish them like oracles, of which the letters and syllables are of the substance of the thing. To know by rote is no knowledge, and signifies no more but only to retain what one has entrusted to our memory. That which a man rightly knows and understands, he is the free disposer of at his own full liberty, without any regard to the author from whence he had it, or fumbling over the leaves of his book. A mere bookish learning is a poor, paltry learning. It may serve for ornament, but there is yet no foundation for any superstructure to be built upon it according to the opinion of Plato, who says that constancy, faith and sincerity are the true philosophy, and the other sciences that are directed to other ends, mere adulterate paint. I could wish that Paluel or Pompey, those two noted dancers of my time, could have taught us to cut capers by only seeing them do it, without stirring from our places, as these men pretend to inform the understanding without ever setting it to work, or that we could learn to ride, handle a pike, touch a lute, or sing without the trouble of practice, as these attempt to make us judge and speak well, without exercising us in judging or speaking. Now, in this initiation of our studies in their progress, whatsoever presents itself before us is book sufficient. A roguish trick of a page, a sottish mistake of a servant, a jest at the table, are so many new subjects. And for this reason, conversation with men is of very great use, and travel into foreign countries, not to bring back an account of only how many paces Santa Rotonda is in circuit, or of the richness of Signora Livia's petticoats, or, as some others, how much Nero's face in a statue in such an old ruin is longer and broader than that made for him on some medal, but to be able chiefly to give an account of the humours, manners, customs and laws of those nations where he has been, and that we may wet and sharpen our wits by rubbing them against those of others. I would that a boy should be sent abroad very young, and first, so as to kill two birds with one stone, into those neighbouring nations 
whose language is most differing from our own, and to which, if it not be formed betimes, the tongue will grow too stiff to bend. And also, tis the general opinion of all, that a child should not be brought up in his mother's lap. Mothers are too tender, and their natural affection is apt to make the most discreet of them all so overfond that they can neither find in their hearts to give them due correction for the faults they may commit, nor suffer them to be inured to hardships and hazards as they ought to be. They will not endure to see them return all dust and sweat from their exercise, to drink cold drink when they are hot, nor see them mount an unruly horse, nor take a foil in hand against a rude fencer, or so much as to discharge a carbine. And yet there is no remedy. Whoever will breed a boy to be good for anything when he comes to be a man, must by no means spare him when young, and must very often transgress the rules of physic. Vitamque subdio et trepidus agat in rebus. Let him live in open air, and ever in movement about something. 